you've been with us uh, since this past October when we began studying Acts, the book itself is summarized as what happens after Jesus ascends into the clouds and leaves his apostles, having been witnesses to what he did, to tell the rest of the world about it after he's gone. And it seemed easy to begin with. The church grew rapidly. 3,000 souls were saved on the first day. But along with the growth of the church, we've begun to read an ever-escalating hostility toward the message that is causing the growth. The message is the gospel. And the people who crucified Jesus don't want to hear it any more from anyone else than they heard it from Jesus himself. So this is Stephen, who was chosen a few weeks ago as one of the first deacons. But now he's been hauled into the council because they don't like what he's teaching. And what we read today is actually his defense of the charges that are brought against him. Uh, many commentators of Stephen's speech, again, the longest chapter in Acts, the longest speech in the book of Acts, and other than the Gospels, it would be the longest except for a few that are given there in the Gospels. Some have criticized this speech as rambling because he covers certain things and then brings them up again. Some say it's even incoherent, that it, 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 you can tell that the man fears for his life. While other commentators call it a skillful proclamation of the gospel, tailored specifically to the group he's addressing. I'll go with that one. Perhaps the difference between how you look at it has to do with the recognition of its purpose. And that is to ask, what is Stephen doing? Where is he standing? Who is he speaking to? then we can understand why he went about what he said the way he went about it. Stephen needs to defend himself from the charges brought against him. And he doesn't only rehearse the history of the Old Testament for those who knew it well, but he draws points from that history that his accusers had likely never heard and perhaps had never noticed. That's what's going to draw not only their ire, but enrage them such to the point that they rush him, carry him out, and execute him. So far, Stephen hasn't spoken. We see the preliminaries last week. And as the chapter opens, his trial begins with the high priest's question, Are these things so? In the previous chapter, as it concluded, the charges were brought against him. Stephen standing there at the council, everyone staring at Stephen. The opening remarks of the accusers are, what do you have to say for yourself is basically the way it begins. All but the last paragraph of what we read today basically has to do with his response to that one question. Are these things so? And remember, he's standing accused and we can count them. This was from last week. He's blasphemed God. He's blasphemed Moses. He's blasphemed the law, and he's blasphemed the temple. So they say. In other words, the most serious charges imaginable in Jewish society. Those were the most important things to them, period. We learned last week that Jesus had blasphemed these things in their opinion, and Stephen had been teaching what Jesus had taught. That's why he's in the same predicament. But his defense gives quite a bit of light on what it is that he's saying. And while the main thrust of his speech is a response to the charges, he also has an agenda. 
Let me give you his agenda up front, and then we'll be able to see it easier as we read through it. Because on the first read, it does seem as if he's repeating himself. It's so for emphasis. But the first thing we're going to notice that Stephen is going to do is he's going to capture and hold his audience's attention. How many of you believe if you're going to talk for a long time, that'd probably be a good thing to execute well, to capture and then maintain your audience's attention. And he'll do this by recounting Israel's history. And since Hebrews were furiously proud of their history, a topic that they never grew tired of talking about, what better way to keep their attention than to do so? Take them on in their arena and in a way that makes them angry as you go. That's pretty much a way to guarantee you don't lose them. Also, he's going to indict his hearers for the sin of rejecting their Messiah. Peter had done this. He's going to do this too. He'll do this by recounting uh, some of the things we saw in, in Peter's messages But he would say that it was they, like their fathers before them, that had blasphemed God by rejecting his prophets and ultimately his son. We'll see this as we go along. And then finally, he will represent Jesus as their true Messiah by using Joseph and Moses as types of Jesus' ministry, even saying that that Moses said that the, the father would send a prophet to you like me. Consequently, maybe coincidentally or incidentally, you be the judge. These are all marks of any great sermon, wouldn't you think? If you've got a, a guy who can't hold your attention, that, that's probably a strike against him. If the sermon doesn't show you your sin, then it's not getting the job done either. And if the sermon doesn't show you your Savior to take away your sin, the sermon is anemic. So it scores very good in each of these regards. So let's start reading. We'll read the first 16 verses, and this has to do with the first charge of blaspheming God. Now, he, some of these things overlap. We can't, he doesn't start one and stop before he goes to the next. They, they overlap each other. But this will be the, the best way to go about seeing these four isolated from one another. Acts chapter 7, verse number 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. After his father died, God removed him from there into this land which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. 
Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Verse 9. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers to their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. We'll stop right there. What have we got? So far, and this one's... Each of these not guilty claims by Stephen will become more obvious as we go further. But basically, in these first 16 verses, he's trying to say that I believe the same thing about God that you do. A no guilty verdict, or plea rather, to the charges of blasphemy against God. He was testifying that he was neither a blasphemer of God nor a traitor to his people, Uh, He mentions right there at the beginning, right out of the gate, Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our fathers. Appeared to Abram or Abraham. Uh, Also gave them the covenant. He has no problem in thinking that God had done the same things that these people think God had done. However, he's laying, at least at the beginning here, the groundwork for an indictment of his own. He's, he's, he's in, in his defense, he's building a counter-argument. Not only is he going to be content to say, what you're saying about me is not true. What he's going to do by the end of this is saying, what you're saying about me is true of yourselves. There is one who blasphemes God, Moses, the temple, and the law. And it's you who didn't understand it to start with, have never kept it, but act as if you have. Now, he goes in easy. He's stepping in the shallow end of the pool here to begin with. But by selling Joseph, he's saying here, this is his first uh, point against them, by selling Joseph into slavery, he said the patriarchs rejected the very one God had chosen to preserve them. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him, but God was with him. So basically he's saying, your ancestors did the wrong thing, but regardless, God was still with him and still did what he wanted to through Joseph, though the patriarchs were oblivious to what was going on as it happened. And this is the first in a pattern of rejection that Stephen is going to build where God's chosen people rejected the best of what God had planned for them over and over again. All right, let's read more. Looking in verse 17 this time. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. 
And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter accepted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit the brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And one of the, on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30. Now, when 40 years had passed, that's 80 if you're counting, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groanings. I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. Verse 35, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. That's where we'll pause. So now, round two, this is the charge of blaspheming Moses. And there's no more cause here for blasphemy against Moses than there was for God as far as Stephen is involved. Again, it was the teaching of Jesus that was under suspicion. Stephen reveres God and recognizes the calling of Moses the same as any of them. As far as God, as far as Moses, the law and the temple, he believed the very thing, same thing they did, only, and here's the rub, he believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of those things that those things pointed to Jesus, that these things would show us like the law that we can't keep it so Jesus will keep it for us and die in our place. The temple, that's where God would interact with people, but we don't need that because God is here on earth in the flesh, in the form of his son Jesus, and so on and so forth. But what we've got here is Stephen's continuing to build the argument that Israel had rejected the works of God at the very beginning. Moses comes to help. He throws him aside and says, Who died and made you king? You kill me like you killed that other guy? Hey, we got a good thing going here. We don't need any uh, entanglement. We don't need any trouble. Don't get us in, don't ruin this for us, Moses. They didn't understand that this wasn't a social call, that he didn't leave uh, the house of Pharaoh to come say hello. He came to f bring them out of Egypt. 
to rescue them. And then as the story goes even further, uh, it seems as if Stephen begins to turn up the volume. This was the Moses that God chose. This was the one that you said who died and made you king. This was the one that God met in a burning bush and told him to take the sandals off his feet. There's no question as to whether or not God worked through this man, Moses. It's obvious, but the point I'm trying to make is that none of them saw it that way. At least if they did, there was a, 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 only an extent they would go before they would reject this man and start complaining about all the things that he had done. So, and if you wondered, this sounds a little different than the other places we read about Moses and the story and the river and the basket. What is this business about exposing the infants? Well, that was the way that they referred to it. They didn't kill these babies themselves. They just left them to die out in the open. Tossed them into the river, some of them. This went on even until New Testament times when a family couldn't afford to take care of a child. Even in uh, other cultures, it was considered to be fine and dandy. If you have all you want then just give one of them back to nature, as it were. Well, when Jesus shows up, that's the end of that type of thinking. And it's Stephen who describes Moses as being beautiful in God's eyes. Well, he'd been told, leave him. He's not needed or wanted. He's beautiful in God's eyes. He's chosen by God. Well, let's keep going. That was... God, then Moses, let's look at the charge of blaspheming the law. Pick up in uh, verse 38. This is the one, he's, he's still on the same, the same emphasis, Moses. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles given to us. That'd be the Ten Commandments. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. In their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over. To the worship of the host of heaven. That'd be stars, moon, kind of like what they did in Egypt. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Question mark. You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Again, Paul's right there. So as far as the charge of blaspheming the law, Stephen, this is a third, sounds like a broken record, not guilty. Stephen affirms his belief in the law. But now he's conspicuously saying, our fathers didn't obey it. So you can feel, I suppose, the temperature rising in the hearing as he continues to speak. He goes further. He reminds them that their fathers, he uses that word, had rejected Moses, turned away their heart. God turns away his heart. And God has the right to destroy the nation these men are so proud of. But Stephen goes to pains to say he remained in the covenant. He's still working with them. He didn't leave them out in the desert. 
doesn't mention the fact that Moses had to say, Lord, please don't wipe them out. Everybody in Egypt will say that was your plan all along, to bring us out in the desert just to kill us. Moses got scared there for a while, that God would abandon them. Why was he scared? Because he saw the way the people acted. Um, Stephen's got guts here. This is where you, you see this man's courage. We talked about last week. It'll take a while to see it. This is courage. This is courage to peel back the layers of hypocrisy here. A, a nation known for the, their revere of the law of Moses, but a history full of one thing consistently, that they never kept it. <laughs> they, they were a grumbling, wandering people. Um, and, of course... The, the overlapping themes, themes here, he's talking about the law, but he's also talking about how um, they resisted the leadership of Moses. I mean, how, how many times did they try to kill him? How many times did they register complaints? Where's, where's the food? You know, we want the vegetables, the leeks, the meat we had in Egypt. Um. Sometimes I can look at passages like this with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek because I did have a front-row seat in a pastor's home. That's where I grew up. I kind of know what it's like to hear people praise a man in public and then tear him apart privately and it get back. Um, And if it's not for the grace of God that allows you to know that we're all broken and that's the way we all are, all of us, and that Jesus will save us from all that stuff, then uh, it would be an act of insanity to follow in one's father's footsteps to ask for another serving, right? Um, But these men don't get that. That's what Stephen's on about. He's calling them out. And he's only telling the truth. Now, it's going to boil to a point of provocation here at the end. But let's look at round four. This is the last one, uh, verses 44 um, through 50. Um, And then we've got the last paragraph altogether. Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Now, that was the tabernacle, if you recall. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. So God asks for this and tells Moses how to do it in accordance to the pattern that he had seen. So God gives him the instructions. We learn this in our little series on Wednesdays through the temple and the tabernacle. Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it, that's the mobile tabernacle, in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. That's, that's an important note that's consistent with the rest of the Scripture. Who asked for the temple? David did, not God. David wants to do this for the Lord rather than the Lord saying, do this for me. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands Says who? As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did I, did not my hand make all these things? 
It's impossible to build a house. People be like uh, an ant farm saying, let's build a house for the people that bought us and stare at us on the kitchen counter. It couldn't be done. We'll save verse 51 for later. What have we got here? So, again, number four, four rounds, four not guilties. Stephen was not guilty of blaspheming the temple. But in this case, he's saying that they have been. And it would take some study. But the thought of the temple as the residence of God, literally speaking, is something that somewhere along the way, the children of Israel's, Israel uh, came to see it as. Stephen's saying that the prophet had to remind you that it's not where he lives. He's never lived there. There's nothing sacred about it. Yes, it's important. Yes, there was specifics with the tabernacle. But you got so mad at Jesus when he said one stone won't be on another because you're thinking that he's going to overthrow the residence of Jehovah God. Now, Jesus knew its purpose. He called it a house of prayer. He wouldn't let them sell things there. He ran money changers out and, and with authority. But the prophets made it clear. This is a place we go, but this is not where God lives as if you can confine him to something. And what they'd done inadvertently, even if it was at one point an honest mistake, they superstitiously acted as if that stood for God's residence. As long as it's there, he's here and we're blessed. But if we knock it down, then God's gone and we're on our own. The same kind of goofy stuff that went on where they felt like they had to have that ark in front of every battle. It got them in trouble too, didn't it? it? Got stolen one time for doing such a thing. It was a superstitious type thing. If he's here, then we're good. If he's not, then we're not. It was a little more complicated than that. Not enough time to go trace it back in Scripture. But the point that Stephen's making, I think, is abundantly clear. He was saying to them, there's such a thing as holy ground outside the holy land. It started on a mountain with a burning bush. Take your shoes off. Now, if there can be holy ground other than in the holy land, then God's not bound up in one spot. So if Jesus says we can knock this thing down and I'll take its place, that's not in violation of something God didn't even say was important to start with. Not in the way that you look at it as important. You've made it more important than God meant for it to be. God meant for it to point to something. That'd be his son. You've meant it to be something to brag about. Since the beginning of the speech, the tension must have been mounting. Stephen pointed out Israel's rejection of God and their apostasies regarding his law. They all must have become increasingly uneasy. And at some point, they had to know where he was going with this. And what is said next in verse 51, and I'll leave the commentary of that till a little later, might as well have been the equivalent of his writing his own death warrant. Now, you tell me if he takes another level in his speech by just trying to gauge the temperature of the words that he says. So on the heels of verse 50... 
from the voice of the prophet, Did not my hands make all these things? And now back to Stephen. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that's Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law is delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, it sounds like the type of a sentence where over and out, but I'm not sure he might have had more to say. But I do believe at this point that's where they took him out and took him outside. And we'll read about that next week. But the accused has now become the accuser. That's how Stephen's mangled body became or was found where, you know, last week we read the end of it first just for the point of uh, dramatic delivery. We read of his body lying there after having been stoned. Well, that's how that happened. This is how that happened. But let's make sure we understand each of these points now that we've gone through them. And some of this might sound like a redundancy, but I, I, I think this one is, has its challenges in taking what was and making it where it will do us something good right here and now. This is the business of application, okay? What we've got here, if you want, you want to title the message, uh, and I usually just use a piece of the scripture itself for the title, but this is the guts of what we just read. Stephen gave us a history of God and the rebellion of men. God is gracious and man is rebellious. That's what that was. And, and, and for those who say, well, this is, it took a long time. And he told them things they already knew. He had to tell them the things they already knew about God to put it up against what they haven't recognized about themselves. God is still good, but you've always been rebellious. It, it, it took that to get to this point. He had said to them, you don't understand the temple. And the question is, do we understand the temple? In other words, in, in, in order for us to understand how we might look at the situation. The temple was a thousand years after God met with Moses. Furthermore, the tabernacle was only a copy, a shadow of what Moses had seen. God didn't live in buildings made by hands. God uses the earth to prop his feet on, says the prophet. All right. Can you think of anything we might have a attachment to that is unhelpful? I, sometimes you, you try to gauge the situation you're in. I, I've been in churches where uh, the church itself... Not just the sanctuary, as it's called, which is set apart. We only do one thing in here, and we're very careful about what we do bring in here because if there's supposed to be anything in here to do what God tells us to do in here, He would have told us in the Scriptures. And there is such thing as bringing things in here that would distract from that or be wrong or make it not set apart anymore. But I've been in churches where you would think that their bathrooms were sanctified too. And you couldn't do anything in there. Um, 
Generations ago, that might have been considered normal. Now, if you want to run some people off and never see them ever again, act like their coffee doesn't belong with them when they come in the door. I don't know that it's that, that we've got an overzealous attachment to this place. But some of us have overzealous attachments to the things that we think belong to us within the arrangement or organization or schedule or this or that. That could be. That might fit. That might hurt, right? Um, What's the purpose of it all? Go back to the purpose and you can eliminate all the fluff. The purpose from the New Testament is that we gather routinely, regularly, weekly, to hear and learn the Word of God together and worship God for who He is and what He's done. Does it matter that some of us are in charge of more things than others? Well, it's going to have to be because not all of us do everything or divided and even shares. But there's ways for our human sinfulness to get in there and try to mess up what we're supposed to do by arguing about things that God told us we never needed to worry about in the first place. We can do the very same thing that these fellas did and miss the whole point just as easily if we don't make sure to keep Jesus front and center. Second, he said you don't understand Moses. You didn't obey the law that was given to him that he was to give to you. He comes down off the mountain and the people were, where have you been? I've been up on the mountain getting the stones, the Ten Commandments, the tablets. What have you been doing? Oh, a little idolatry, maybe a little adultery too. You know, you should have come back. That was one of the stories that just, even as a kid on the floor with the teacher looking at the flannel graph, I thought, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. There's fire on the top of that mountain and smoke. And if you get close to it, you'll die. But he's, maybe this is just a, some kids are different. If dad was coming home any time that week, I wasn't going to goof off. If my brother thought he had five minutes, there's still time. Right? Maybe it has something to do with that. But who in the world thinks they can get by with what they did with God on top of the mountain with the man named Moses? But they did it. And really, when we're adults and we're sitting in some place where we've got to work out the consequences of our idiotic mistakes, let's just say it's counseling or let's just say it's in the back of a police car or something like that. What are all of us safe from one end of the spectrum to the other. What were you thinking? I don't know. Now, we know what we were thinking. It's just what we were thinking sounds so stupid, it's better to just say, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> right? Or like squints. If you were thinking, you wouldn't have thought that. That's the truth. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, and it stays there until they're dead and old. This is what Jesus came here to cure us from, to take away. It's the reason why there's a cross. But for some reason, we like to think that if there's a guy like Moses who seems to have it all put together, well, we'll do our thing and we'll gripe about him because, you know, he's perfect until he, uh, what, hits a rock he was supposed to speak to. And then he never sees the promised land. He was real too and fallen and just as much in need of the cross as any of the rest of us. So they said he was a great leader, but they didn't obey it. They didn't understand the law. 
Here's something I read and I thought it was worth mentioning. Have you ever noticed that some Christians that seem most concerned about the law are the last ones to see that they don't keep it? It's something about the ones who are just real sticklers on it, keep a little checklist in their head or their pocket. You know, it's called legalism. Uh, Christian schools uh, were full of it. Um, part of it, you just needed to learn how to navigate but it, again, it, it's, it's human behavior. It's sin nature. Obedience to the law is never optional. But we must not be so preoccupied with the law that we never find grace to overcome our powerlessness over it through Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Stephen is talking to a group of people who are so worried about the law, they killed the only one who ever kept it. Now, that's the height of human sin. We get close to it ourselves. There's a warning for us here too. And then finally, you don't understand the God of your fathers. Now this last paragraph, that's basically what amounts to a covenant lawsuit. Stephen sounds mighty prophetic here. And uh, I don't know, try this on. Do you realize that the prophets were actually covenant attorneys? I don't know what you think about lawyers. You know, they, they unfairly sometimes get to be part of jokes and all kinds of stuff, um, along with other professions. But think of it that way. They were the ones who went to the unfaithful party and said, according to the agreement, the covenant, you are wrong and need to alter course. You are headed for covenant consequences called curses. And what did God's people do with the covenant attorneys? They killed them all. I mean, think of that. So after that last layer on this argument is positioned, he goes in for the final point. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Stiff-necked was something that the prophets used. Circumcised were what they used to talk about other people who weren't as if it were some type of uh, racist identifier that gave them a superiority. And if you know what it is, then you know to bring it up. I don't know that you could craft a better insult. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your uncircumcised heart and ears. He says, where it counts, letter of the law, absolutely. But where it's most important, the spirit of the law, you failed completely. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, how many of you think in our culture, any pastor can get by with saying, you stiff-necked people? Stubborn people. You always disobey this book. How many of your mothers told you that you could use the word always? Euphemistically. To leverage your... No, they told you never use words like always, right? Because it's usually not always. Now, is this always in every point? No. Is it true always in that we're all sinners, we've all sinned? Yes. But I think we have a good case in Scripture that God's man in God's sermon is using an exaggeration purposefully 
There's nothing else to look at here than to call this deliberate provocation in order to proclaim the truth. You probably know me by now if you've been here since I got here three and a half years ago. This is not necessarily my style. I don't like to go start a fire in a room and then watch people try to put it out. That's just not the way uh, God wired me up. I get a little nervous using big words like that, but I think they were necessary at, at this point to provoke these people where the truth hurt. They were cut to the quick. You crucified the Messiah. He had to come because of your sin. And every now and then, it's necessary. And I think absolutely necessary, at least for the entrance exam, in order to demonstrate faith in the gospel, that you have to be hit with the fact that you are the reason that Jesus died. His death was necessary to save your soul. And it wasn't that he's just being real nice and, you know, no, you are complicit in the sin that brought about his death. Had to be paid for. You're a murderer. That's tough to hear. But if you know the whole gospel, you have to, and he's going to forgive that. And you're back to the garden with him forever the way he designed it. But isn't it hard to hear to begin with? This idea of deliberate provocation, does that remind you of any other type of teaching in the Bible? Just about every last one of the parables. Snuck into those nice little stories we listen to as kids is a sword to absolutely eviscerate those who were listening to the story. Especially the guy who said, who's my neighbor? My goodness. Absolutely routed. So what is Stephen telling them on this grand occasion? What they want to hear or what they need to hear? Sometimes what they need to hear needs a little needs an accelerant. The only thing you've done consistently is resist the Spirit of God as your fathers did, so do you. So this story is not only a story of God and the rebellion of men. The one thing I haven't mentioned yet is that throughout the whole story, there have been hints, and then there have been statements, and then there have been all-out conspicuous portions of God's deliverance. That he's worked with these people, saved these people, delivered these people all along. And probably the best way to look at it, because what that amounts to is hope. I don't know about you, but living this side of heaven, hope is is among the most precious of commodities, but it's the most fragile of them all, wouldn't you say? We hope we get to live with our families until we're old and all the time we want to spend with them and happiness and harmony, but it doesn't take much for that all to come crashing to the ground, even by no fault of our own. Look at the men that are mentioned in this. There there are five of them, if we want to count Stephen, but the four that he decided to, to include, 
Abraham. Did that man need faith in order to grab a hold of something? He would. He, all right, I want you to leave and go somewhere. I'll tell you when you get there. And then uh, your name, which means father of a bunch of sons. Well, you don't have any at all. I'm going to change it to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And how long did it go before he still didn't have any kids? What did his wife think of such a, a promise? She laughed at it. Do you think Abraham ever sat around and wondered if this God had left him or that if he was crazy or just heard all of it or made it up in his own head? No. I think he thought about that a lot. He's human. So, yeah, God stretched this man Abraham quite a bit. People think a lot of him as a result. What about the next one? Joseph. That's a happy family, isn't it? throw him away down a hole and that was because one of his brothers didn't have the guts to go along with the others and then he gets to Egypt he's put in charge and because this woman likes him so much finds out she can't have him well then everything he had is thrown away for the second time and then there's the introduction of that chapter after the break where he'd been able to interpret some dreams hey don't forget me down here two whole years later I like the word whole in there. Kids use that word. You mean a whole year, or a whole hour, or a whole 10 minutes, a whole two years? He rotted away in a jail cell. And then he comes back out because the king knows this guy can interpret dreams. But does, does Joseph sit in the prison and say, God's forgotten me? You know, everybody else had. But no, he hadn't forgot him. God's going to use him to save all of them from starving to death. And then there's Moses. Even Stephen tells us there was 40 years where he was becoming a somebody in Egypt. You know, like the goofy movie Prince of Egypt. They write a whole lot of the garbage in there that's not in the record. But it was some education. This man was supposed to take over for the Pharaoh, it seems. Then he spent the next 40 years becoming a nobody in the desert, fleeing for his life because he was a murderer. And then the last 40 years, he learns what God can do with a nobody. He's better a nobody than when he was a somebody. And then the people that God put for him to lead hated him. Is there ever a position where Moses thought God has forgotten all about us? Sure. He didn't even get to see the promised land. But sure, everybody knows his name. Is that enough as a consolation for this guy? I don't know. And then there's David. King David, man after God's own heart. You know where he wrote all those psalms we love so much? In a cave, hiding out for his life because his crazy king wanted to kill him. Those are stories of a man on the edge of, of, of death who found gold in the back of those caves and wrote it down through his tears. Every one of these, God didn't use these men greatly until he had hurt them deeply. Maybe the problem with these fellows who think they know so much is they don't know anything. They've got plenty of money. They've never needed for anything. Everybody does what they say. They have no clue. They surely don't know what Jesus went through. So what we've got here is a story of God, a story of rebellion, but a story of deliverance. 
And we'll see what people do with that message when we gather again next week. And we're introduced to another person who's going to be part of the execution. But I wonder if it doesn't change his life forever. I wonder if on a road to Damascus, it's not Stephen's message that comes back and makes all the difference. And this man who truly was a murderer then becomes God's best resource for spreading the gospel of salvation through the Gentile world. But that's for later. We've got enough for now. We've had our plate full today and uh, perhaps set a record. But let's us hope that the Lord's put something in our head or our heart that might change us. Not for our good, but for his and someone else's. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Stephen and for his defense. Thank you for the truth packed away in each of the statements. And Lord, where the the shoe of this truth fits, Lord, may we put it on. Give us the guts to put it on. And then, Lord, would you give us what's necessary to get out on our knees and apologize in repentance to confess that we don't keep this law any more than they did. But, Lord, that we know the one who did and that through his help, his working in us, we can work out our salvation. Thank you for a church of gathered saints. Thank you for open Bibles. Thank you for a living word. And thank you for time to tell others. Other than that, Lord, may you come quickly. We ask this in your name. Amen.